We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The key question today is this. How many people actually saw Jesus after he rose from the grave? Was it just a couple women? Was it just a couple disciples, a handful of followers? Or were there literally hundreds of people that confirmed they saw the resurrected Lord. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning, and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks for listening into the show. Today's topic is probably the last installment of a series of shows that I've done post-Easter, because I've wanted to talk about the evidence of the resurrection. That's what Easter's all about. That's why we celebrate it. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. The grave has no body in it. This is the story of Easter, that Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God. He was crucified for making that claim. You know, some people will say, no, he was crucified because of his political points of view, that the Romans crucified him because he was a threat to their power and to their rule. No, that's not the case. If you go back and read the Gospels, you know that Jesus was crucified because of his claims to be God. When he said When he answered the Pharisees and said, I am, when he made that claim that I am, he was making the claim to be God, because that's the definition that God claimed for himself. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. That's what God told Moses, and Jesus was using the exact same language to describe and define himself. The Pharisees were outraged, outraged. This was blasphemy in their eyes, and that is what led them led them to turn him over to the Romans and manipulate the Roman government to actually do their dirty work for him, and that is to execute Jesus Christ. Well, we know this all happened. Very few people will dispute the historical veracity, the fact that Jesus was executed. We've talked about that. We've talked about the evidence of the crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified, that he was flogged first, and then he was nailed to a cross, and that he was then pierced by a spear while he was on the cross. That spear actually penetrated his heart. That's why there was water and blood that ushered forth. All of this is true, and I've tried to share with you the reasons that we can believe that this is a true report of history. Uh, One of the things people will say, well, I've heard that they didn't crucify people that way. They didn't drive spikes through their hands and feet. They actually just tied them to the cross with ropes. In fact, you've probably seen movies where the crucified people are tied to the cross and not necessarily nailed to it. Well, one of the facts that we know is that recently archaeology has discovered the bones of a crucified person in the first century then the bones still had the spikes through the person's feet. So 
we know that they did use spikes. Now, did they use ropes too? Perhaps. And one of the reasons that they would have used ropes in addition to the spikes is because the pressure on the body hanging on the cross could have, could have in some cases actually torn away from the cross. So they would have used the ropes to secure them there so that the body wouldn't fall away. Um, not not all, always the case, but in some cases that may have happened. And really, really, we're going to make a big deal about whether or not they had ropes tied to Jesus in addition to the spikes that they drove through his, his wrists and his feet. And I've, I've shared with you the excruciating nature of what would have taken place in the flogging as well as the crucifixion itself. I even shared with you yesterday that the word excruciating was invented. It was invented as a, as a means of describing the horrific pain that people endured while they were being crucified. Excruciating is crucifixion. That's where the word comes from. Excruciating is a derivative of the word crucifixion. Interesting, isn't it? When you look at the etymology of our language and the words we use, it, all, it, often, it often tells us a great deal about what, what it is we're trying to communicate. Anyway, all of that said, all of that said, I've shared some of that with you in the post-Easter broadcast that I've done. But today I want to talk about the evidence of a risen Lord. Did people actually see him? Okay, we know he was crucified. Uh, we know that he was buried in a tomb, in a grave, um, an expensive one, that Joseph of Arimathea actually donated for that cause, for that purpose. We know that's a historical fact. He wasn't thrown in a mass grave. And how do we know that? Because the, the Jews themselves attest to it, because they start arguing they start arguing in a way as to try to uh, explain away why the tomb is empty. If he wasn't in the tomb in the first place, they would have said, what are you talking about? He's not in a tomb. We saw his body thrown into a mass grave. They didn't do that. They acknowledged that he was buried in a tomb implicitly by arguing that the tomb was empty because the soldiers fell asleep and somebody stole the body. Why would you go down that path? Why would you argue that way unless you were admitting that the tomb existed in the first place and that Jesus was in it? Okay, so we've got all of this evidence in the narrative if you listen to it and you read it carefully. But we also have something that some people consider to be the absolute earliest, perhaps the earliest of all Christian teaching. And that is this creed that the Apostle Paul references in his letter to the Church of Corinth, the, the, the first epistle to the Corinthians. We've talked about that in an earlier broadcast too, but I want to go back to it and review what it says because it's very important. And I'm going to share with you the approximate date that some scholars give to this creed. And it's stunning. It's stunning. It's not decades after the event. It could literally be weeks or maybe a couple years. When the Apostle Paul refers to this particular creed, and when he reminds the Corinthians that, as I've already told you, he's dating this by virtue of his sentence structure and the way he communicates to the church of Corinth, he's dating it in a very, very early fashion. This is what they were saying about Jesus from the beginning, literally, within a blink of an eye. After the events they're talking about, the church was already teaching this, preaching this, proclaiming this universally. The resurrection story, the Easter story, goes back to day one of the Christian church. I'm going to share that with you and how it ties into eyewitnesses, 
eyewitnesses that actually corroborate this early creed. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. It's very important as we talk about the testimony of Paul to acknowledge where he got his information in the first place. And as I've said in previous episodes, Paul gets his information from who? He gets his information from those who actually were part of Jesus's three-year earthly ministry, the, the 12 disciples. Actually, I need to stand corrected there. We know that there were only 11 left because Judas committed suicide. Well, Paul interacted with these guys. He interacted with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Peter, and James. In fact, we know specifically that after his own conversion, Paul returned to Jerusalem. He went back to Jerusalem to meet with who? Peter and James and interview them. He actually sat down and asked them questions about Jesus, about his teaching, and about the resurrection. And it's from that interview, that interviewing of Peter and James, that we get this creed that Paul passes on to the church of Corinth. And he describes it in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We've already talked about it, but I want you to hear it again today. It's very important because it's very clear what he's saying, but it's also clear when you look at the historical evidence that this was something that was being taught very early in the church, not decades after the events, but literally, literally, maybe one, two, or three years after the events, and probably even sooner than that. And stop and think about it. In your family conversations or in the things you write, if you're writing about something that took place at the, in your job or on a vacation just two or three years ago, what's the likelihood that you're being accurate? What's the likelihood that your memory is still pretty clear? In fact, the reason you're writing about it is because it's something that really struck you. It really made an impression on you. Maybe the mountains of Italy or uh, maybe the fact that you had a cruise to Alaska. And it's still fresh. It's still, it's still there. You remember the beauty of that vacation. You remember an epiphany. You remember a moment. You remember a restaurant. You remember a concert. You, you remember walking the streets of Rome or strolling through the park in New York City. You remember going to a Broadway play. And if this happened just, you know, back in 2019, 2020, and you're talking about it, writing about it, speaking about it today, you're, you're probably describing it quite accurately, thank you, right? And in fact, that memory is what's leading you to still be talking about it. Now consider this when you hear what Paul tells the church in Corinth. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And then last of all, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, and unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
Now, that's what Paul is telling the church of Corinth. Now, don't just skip over that as if you're just hearing another Bible verse. This is critical. This is critical. He says this to the church of Corinth. And I'm going to tell you when he wrote this, but he He's talking about stuff stuff that he's saying, I've already talked to you about this before. So before he's writing it in this letter, he's acknowledging that I delivered to you. This is what I've already talked about with you. We've met before. I delivered to you something that was of the first importance, something that's very, very, very much a priority. He says, I delivered to you something of first importance, Something that I received. He's talking in the past tense. So what he's talking about right now preceded what he's writing in this letter. That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scripture, that he was buried. He died and he was buried. Yes, he died on a cross. He was crucified. He was dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't resuscitate. He didn't walk away a few days later and venture off into India, live the rest of his life. No, that's all baloney. That's hogwash. Paul's saying that Christ did die. He died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried. He was buried. He was buried in a tomb. He wasn't thrown in a mass grave, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. How do we know that? Because the tomb's empty. And even the Jews themselves, the Pharisees themselves, his adversaries, even the Romans themselves, all acknowledge that the tomb's empty by virtue of their trying to explain it away. Well, the the guards fell asleep, or the apostles came and robbed the grave, and they stole the body. I mean, this is the stuff that the adversaries, the malcontents, the naysayers brought up to try to explain the empty tomb. They didn't say, what tomb? What are you guys talking about? There is no tomb. We threw this guy into a mass grave. They didn't say that. They tried to explain away the evidence. You need to remember that. So again, the creed, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and then he appeared. He appeared, and that's what I want to talk about in the rest of the show. He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive. And then he appeared to James And then to all the apostles, there were more apostles just than the 12, by the way. And last of all, he appeared also to me. And I am the least and unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this is an important creed. This is a very important creed. And it is a creed. We know this because textual criticism helps us understand the structure of what was just said. And I'm going to explain to you now why it's a creed. And I'm going to use the book, Uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel again. I've been using that in the previous couple shows. Now, Strobel's out doing his investigative reporting when he wrote this book. And as I described to you, Strobel was an atheist that wrote for the Chicago Tribune, and he decided to look into the story of Christ. He didn't believe it, and he thought as he goes through his investigative research, he's going to be able to confirm that this is all all just a, a fairy tale. And he concluded the exact opposite as he was going through his research. And one of the guys he interviewed was a guy by the name of Gary Habermas, who is a brilliant scholar who helps bring home the reality of this passage of Scripture that I just read to you. And he shares with Lee Strobel in this book, as Strobel records it, the reasons that this particular passage should be attended to. 
that it's not just a throwaway couple verses, that it is the core of Christian teaching and that it was being taught very, 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 very early in the history of the church, probably within days. And then it was actually being passed on within maybe two or three years after the events. Again, kind of like I described to you earlier, if you were passing on uh, a story to your friends over a cup of coffee of your time on a vacation that you really enjoyed back in 2019, 2020, that would be the nature of what's being said in this particular passage as Paul communicates to the church in Corinth. Now again, why does, why does Habermas and others, why do Habermas and others believe that this was a creed and not just a, a statement? A creed would be important because it's a formalized statement that you're using to teach people some basics, kind of a mission statement, if you will, that can't be changed. It's got basic components. It's what we believe. It's who we are. And it is formalized in structure, in syntax, in, in, in the way that it's being written, in the way that it's being proclaimed to successive generations, to your students, to your pupils. It's put together for a very specific reason. You can't change it. You adhere to it. So why is it a creed? Well, Habermas says, first, Paul introduces it to the Corinthians with the words received and delivered or passed on. Some translations will say passed on. Well, why is that important? Well, these are technically rabbinic terms. These are terms that rabbis use to describe what they were passing on as holy tradition. In other words, the teacher, the rabbi would say, I received this, and I delivered this, and I'm passing it on. Do not change it. This is creedal. It must be adhered to. This stuff is objectively true, and it's not emotional, and it's not subjective, and it can't be changed by your opinions or by time. This is a creed. So the words received, delivered, these are rabbinic terms, terms that rabbis used to describe holy tradition. Second, Habermas says this, the, the parallelism, the stylized content of this particular passage, the cadence, the way it's written, the way the structure of the grammar is put together indicates that it's a creed. And if you understand textual criticism, which I don't, but I trust those people that have expertise and training in it, I trust that, okay, there's something special here. This just isn't Paul rattling off a list of priorities. No, he's reciting something that was passed on to him that he received, that, that was delivered to him, and he's doing likewise to his students because of the structure, the parallelism, and the stylized content of the actual words that were being used to convey these truths. And then third, we're told this. In the original text, Paul refers to Cephas, not Peter, but Cephas. Well, this was Aramaic. Well, why is that important? Aramaic would indicate a very early origin. In other words, he's using Aramaic at the time, which dates this particular, this particular passage. So this now establishes an early date. Fourth, fourth, the creed uses several other primitive phrases that Paul would not have commonly used. If you look at Paul's writing and the way he communicates, he doesn't use language like the 12 or the third day or he was raised. 
These are early phrases that describe something that took place in those first days. This is according to a scholar named Habermas. And then fifth, we see that the use of certain words in this particular passage are what he calls Mishnaic Hebrew, which means narration, which means this was narrated to me, this was told to me, and I'm reciting the narrative, the narration, in, and I'm quoting it, I'm quoting what I was told. Okay, so that's why we know that this was a creed and not just a list of priorities that Paul was popping off. And we have non-Christians attesting to everything that I just said. There's a Jewish scholar out there called Joachim Jeremias, and he says that this creed is the earliest tradition of all. So he's even attesting to the fact that it's a creed and that it is one of the earliest writings we have to describe Christianity. And then then we have Ulrich Wilkins, who I don't believe is a Christian, who says this. He says it goes back to the oldest phrase of all in history of the primitive Christian beliefs. So we have non-Christians affirming that it's a creed and that it's one of the earliest things that was ever written about Christianity. Well, well, how early is that? Now, I think this is critical. If you've got something that was written not in you know, the latter part of the first century or the early part of the second century, because that's what a lot of the skeptics will, will throw out there. Well, this stuff wasn't even put down in writing, and nobody really believed this stuff until decades or maybe a hundred years after the fact. Well, that's just not true. That's not true, and we know it's not true by virtue of 1 Corinthians. When did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, almost everybody secular as well as Christian scholars alike, admit that Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians between A.D. 55 and A.D. 57. Well, you say, well, that's, that's, quite, a while, that's quite a while after the, the events. Didn't Jesus die in around 30 A.D.? And, and, and if he did rise from the grave, that's when that would have happened, right? Why don't we have anything until A.D. 55 or A.D. 57? Why, why such a gap? Well, pay attention to this. Yes, Paul did write 1 Corinthians in 55 or 57 AD. But when he talks about the fact that this stuff was passed on to him and delivered to him, he's obviously referring to the fact that the information preceded the writing of his letter to the Corinthians, right? He already had this information. He was already out there preaching it. Because he says, I've shared this with you before. I passed on to you as it was passed on to me. That, and then he goes in and he cites the creed. So when we're talking about this passage in chapter 15 of Corinthians, he number one, he had already passed on this creed to the church in Corinth, which would mean that it must predate his visit there, which was in AD 51, and it must predate his letter back to the Corinthians in AD 55 or AD 57. So I'm going to repeat everything I just said. We know that Paul's visit to the church of Corinth was in AD 51. We think, most scholars agree, that he wrote his first letter to them after that visit in AD 55 or thereabout. But we also know by virtue of what he just said that the creed existed before his visit, that he passed on to the church during his first visit what had already been passed on to him before he came for that visit. All right, so now we're backing this up, right? So 
the creed was being used within 20 years of the resurrection, right? You can only conclude that. Do the math. Well, 20 years, that's two decades. Could things have been twisted? Well, let's look at this. Habermas says this, However, I'd agree with various scholars who trace it back even further to within two to eight years of the resurrection, or be from, excuse me, or from about A.D. 32 to A.D. 38, when Paul received this information either in Damascus or in Jerusalem. And how would he have received that? He received it because he went to visit James and Peter and the rest of the disciples because he wanted to learn from them after his conversion, his, his experience on the road to Damascus. So this creed is important, isn't it? Well, we've got a few minutes, so I want to talk about another very important thing. In the creed, at the, he kind of, at the tail end of it, he says, Christ appeared to Peter, to the apostles, and then to 500. 500 people who are still alive. Now, why would Paul say that and put himself out there for criticism by saying there are people still walking around that will confirm to you what I'm saying? Why would he have said that if he didn't believe that the people would corroborate his story? And why do we have no evidence of some of these 500 coming forward and saying, Paul's a liar. He says that I saw the risen Christ. I didn't. I'm among those 500 people that he's talking about. Didn't happen. We have no evidence of that. So again, think of it in context. Let's say you went to a basketball game. In fact, I'm going to refer to a specific basketball game that I watched as well as at least another 500 people watching the same. It was, a, it was a game a few years ago where Oklahoma Wesleyan was making a national run for the NAIA championship. And one of our players, his name was Sadiel Rojas, took over. He actually almost single-handedly won the game for us. How so? Well, he scored over 40 points. You might say, well, that's amazing. But in the same game, he had over 20 rebounds. He scored over 40 points and had over 20 rebounds. I, w- I remember one specific play. I mean, he was going crazy, and the opponents were triple-teaming him. He got the ball on the baseline. Again, the defense triple-teamed him. In spite of that, he drove baseline and had a massive slam dunk over those three players that were trying to stop him. It was crazy. Sadio Rojas went nuts. Now, everything I just described to you could be either proven to be a lie or proven to be true. And I could say, hey, I know it's true. Just talk to the people that watched the game. Go back and talk to them. Every single person that was watching the game, friend or foe, fan or naysayer, will confirm that Sadio Rojas had over 40 points and over 20 rebounds. Nobody's going to say it's a lie. Why? because they were there. They saw the appearance of Sadio Rojas. How do we know that the resurrection is true? Because Paul says, talk to the people that were there. Talk to the fans. Talk to the people who saw this happen. They'll confirm it. Everybody knows that Jesus rose from the grave. Paul's making that point very early in the teachings of the church. Maybe within two, three, five years after the event. 
How dare we come along centuries later and claim we know more? Think about it. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.